1: always do such a good job. Hey, I just want to say thank you to all of you that participated in the, uh, the Cuba thing. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but several of you must have got on your phones and tapped out emails to Senator Rich and um, were able to get a hold of the right people. And as a church, this is something we've partnered with Cuba for years. It's, um, it's kind of a, an, a new missions field as far as like the church being able to reach into Cuba. And the the group we partner with there, we have him come speak, um, the leader of it, his name is Pastor Faustino, uh, and he'll come speak here every once in a while, about every year, and uh, when the government opened up and allowed Christianity in, about 400 uh, Cuban underground churches that were with Pastor Faustino emerged. And uh, you're you're a part of supporting that and helping them. They, uh, it's, a, it's a struggling church community as far as uh, finances and resources, but it is a thriving church community when it comes to the spirit and the gospel. And uh, it's so much fun to be a part of it. During COVID, during the, the lockdowns that happened, uh, there, there was very little uh, help we could get to them. In fact, most of the ways we typically would get help to them were shut down. And there aren't many ways to get money to Cuba because our country has about a 60, maybe an 80-year-old embargo on Cuba. And so um, uh, I guess it's 60-year-old cu- uh, embargo on Cuba. But it, it's, it's been really interesting to see the Lord work through your, your efforts. Truly, like we can give to the kingdom of God in many ways and sometimes we give financially and sometimes we give with our time. Uh, but many of you gave with just taking the time to tap out an email to somebody that can make a difference and, uh, and we're able to get food to people that have been unable to get good amounts of food for quite some time. So thank you for that. It really is special. <clears throat> well, are you guys ready? Come on. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. So I, I grew up in like a churchy church. That's how I grew up. And so if you talk back to me a little bit, I'll, I'll preach a little bit better. Uh, if you get quiet, I'll get quiet too. That's how. That's how we roll around here. But um, you know, I, I love it on, on Sundays when when the team uh, or my wife was just up here. She hasn't seen my. Well, she, she saw. She heard my message last last uh, service. But just hearing uh, how people. Uh, feel the common thread of what the Spirit is saying. And when my wife was saying that the Lord is a jealous God, I, I think that's, that's such a powerful thought that we often overlook, don't we? Uh, we? We don't really know what that means. What does it mean that God is jealous? That just seems like a, a characteristic that, that you wouldn't want from a good God. But, but I'm here to tell you today that he truly is a jealous God, and he is jealous for you. He's like he's like, like a junior high boyfriend that can't stand it when you're seeing somebody else. Somebody, <laughs> he's jealous for you. And um, today I want to take you to Gideon, the story of Gideon, just to open up. Um, you know, often when we look at the story of Gideon, we um, we focus on the fact that God is delivering the children of Israel from. The Midianites. He delivers them from the hand of the Midianites, and he is he's doing a work in that way. But but I think we we can quickly overlook the fact that God is actually up to something beyond freeing the children of Israel from the Midianites. Uh, from our sort of uh, egocentric view of the Bible, we're thinking God's ultimate goal is to free us from oppression. And that is maybe a, a motive of the Lord, but in the story of Gideon, God's plan, it includes freeing, freeing them from the Midianites, but it's not about freeing them from the Midianites. And we get context for what God does with Gideon uh, in Judges chapter 6. It says this, it says, and I said to you, this is the Lord, he says, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear or respect or honor, that's the idea of fear, to to respect or honor the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This sets the tone for the story of Gideon. We often talk about how the the Midianites are coming in and stealing the grain and the wheat from the children of Israel, but what sets the tone is, is God saying you haven't respected me. You haven't honored me. Like, like, I'm a jealous God, and you have wandered off looking for alternatives. I want you to know today that God is, is a God that he, he notices when you find another. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, he recognizes when we replace his priority in our life with someone else, something else, Someplace else, when we substitute anything for him, he becomes keenly aware and so the Lord meets this man Gideon and he he finds him uh, the Bible tells us he's he's threshing wheat behind a wine press he's he's breaking apart the little grains of wheat so he can feed his family in hiding because he's afraid that people will come and steal his his food from him. And the angel of the Lord meets Gideon and says, Oh, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Which is <laughs> hilarious because Gideon is hiding. He's hiding behind a winepress in the middle of the night. And the angel of the Lord says, You are a mighty man of valor. I, for one, am thankful that the Lord, when, when he calls us, he doesn't call us by what we are, but he calls us by what we will be. Right? He doesn't just call you by your insecurities that you're living through in the moment, but he sees who you will be through him. And So Gideon responds to the Lord. And, and as Gideon responds to the Lord, uh, the Bible tells us he, he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and it's often from this point that we skip to the idea of, of Gideon putting out fleeces before God to hear from God if he should um, have a military response To the midianites but there's a there's a short passage of scripture before like from when Midian from when gideon hears from the lord and when he puts out the fleeces that i think is the crux of the whole story it's the point of the whole thing because gideon has an encounter with god and his response before taking any kind of action politically or in any sort of military way, his response is in Judges chapter 6, verse 25. It says, And that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah poles that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order, and then take the second bull as an uh, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Gideon's First response in this story was in response to God's first request. God's initial request was not, Gideon, would you set my people free? His initial response was, Gideon, would you prioritize me in your heart? Gideon, your family has has allowed alternatives, has allowed options into their world, and so Gideon, if I'm going to do any great thing through you, it's going to come after you realign the priorities of your life, and so God tells him, I want you to remove the, the statues or the idols made to a God named Baal. I, w- I want you to pull down these, 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 these statues. And I want you to go to the Asherah poles, these fertility poles that your dad had built. These, they're basically a, a totem pole of the Middle East. and I want you to cut that down and I want you to use it to burn an offering to the one true God. I want to tell somebody today that God really is a jealous God. He he is not looking for a divided loyalty. He's not looking for a half-hearted love. He's the kind of God that desperately wants to do great things through you, but he's requiring that we have a, uh, a, a full commitment to his mission, agenda, and his being. This idea is, is so interesting to me because I, I think we all like the idea of I want to have an undivided heart before God, right? Like, like I want to I have my heart solely committed to God, but the truth of the matter is, is that in order for you to, to really remove yourself from the things that hold your heart, it is not easy, And if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. This idea of, of God requiring an undivided heart from Gideon, it's, it's, not, it's not something that we see only in the story of Gideon, but Jesus tells us parables that match this same concept. This is not just an Old Testament concept. concept. This is also a New Testament principle. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 13. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and bought it. Saying a a pearl merchant that has many pearls... When he finds a pearl of value, he liquidates all of his assets so that he can gain the one of great value. I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in a household that didn't have TV, so which my kids when they hear that they're like, "That you didn't have a TV? No, I didn't have a TV." Um, uh, my home growing up, we just never had a TV, we also didn't dance. <laughs> we just, we, that was the kind of the church culture we grew up in. Uh, it's called the holiness church culture. That's, that's how we were. Um, in fact, I was at a wedding this past weekend, and I just wished that these white legs could dance on that dance floor so bad. But, but I don't know what I'm doing. But I got the best advice after the first service. They're like, hey, it's not about knowing how to dance. It's just not caring. And I was like, oh, I cannot care. Like, I can do that. <laughs> so maybe I'll be dancing at the next wedding, somebody. But growing up in in a house with no TV, as a kid, like, whenever you got around a TV, like, that's all you could see. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could tell the kids that didn't have a TV growing up because when they went to Applebee's, they just sat there and they're like, ah. Like, it could be golf. And they're like, ah, like, just watching it. For me, I I remember I would, uh, the, the moments when I was a child and I remember seeing TV was at my grandmother's house. My grandma, she did, she made cookies with mayonnaise, which was weird. But they were always available. You know what I mean? They were, they were always in the, the pink Tupperware container behind the little doily thing. Like she, she always had. But she also had a TV, and she had an old-fashioned TV. These are the the old kind of box TVs with the with the wood trim around it and the dial. You know, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all my millennials. When I'm saying TV, what I mean is. What I mean is like a laptop, but it's bigger than a laptop, right? And it has antennas. <laughs> so this And so, for my grandma's TV, I would sit there for hours. Like my family's, my grandma's trying to get me to play Rummy Cube with her, and I'd be like, "Grandma, you cheat at Rummy Cube. I'm just gonna watch TV." And I'm not, I'm not slandering my my grandma. She actually did cheat at Rummy Cube. She never lost a game in her life, even if it was to her five-year-old grandson. You know what I mean? <laughs> But I would watch on this TV from my grandma's house, I would watch um, Hogan's Heroes. That's good quality programming, right? That's good stuff. Hogan's Heroes, and we'd watch Black Sheep. Does anybody remember Black Sheep? That was... That was good stuff, and then it started getting real good, like Airwolf, Airwolf was it, you know, <laughs> Airwolf was a, the same explosion in every single episode, it was, it was so good, and uh, you know, like the A-team, and MacGyver, and some of you right now are like, I have no idea what he's saying, but that's because you missed the golden years of television. And so, anytime I wanted to change the channel on my my grandmother's TV, I would I would go up and I'd grab. There's this little wooden knob, on like a fake wooden knob on a fake wooden trim, and you'd have to turn this little knob. And it had like ten channels on the whole thing, you know? It was like click, and then the next one would show. Click, and the next thing would show up, and and that's all. That's about all you had for options. And so those were those were my favorite shows because those were all that were available. And then as we got older, I remember for a season my family did have a TV. Uh, we we'd moved to California for a year and, um, in San Pablo, California, and my parents, they, they even though they didn't like the idea of TV, they really didn't like the idea of me running around outside in San Pablo, and so they, so they got us a TV, and so, um, but this one was different than my grandma's because this one had a remote, and you'd push the button on it, and when you did, it would, like, scroll through, like, an infinite number of channels, and like half of them, my parents never paid for, but they were still there. You know what I mean? Like, like there's just just a, you get in the hundreds and the two hundreds and the three. Like it's just all these channels and channels and 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 they actually came out with this thing called a a TV guide. anybody remember a TV guide? Yeah. You know, what I mean? and you get on there and you get you could open this little book. It was a book that would show you where the TV would be like what what your show would be on what time and you'd have to tune in at the right time to be able to get to watch the movie you wanted. That was fun. I mean, it's so many options and but it's changed now because we have a TV in our living room, but it's it's different. Um, it, it's got a Roku on it, and so this TV they actually call it a smart TV. It has like. It has like so many options, like all these like YouTube and Hulu and uh, uh, Disney Plus and and uh, uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime, like all Apple TV, all these different, and every one of them has all the exact same content, but you have to pay for each of them individually. It's just ridiculous. So to do is you find family members and they buy a membership and you buy a membership and you swap, you know. That's that's the word of the Lord for somebody and. And, but here's the deal. So now, like, when we want to watch a fa- like, because we do family movie nights occasionally. Set, Friday nights, we try. We're not strict at this. But we as a family, we, we attempt to shut off all the electronics and just spend time with our kids. We're not the best at it. In fact, uh, through COVID and through this, this past summer, it's, it's been a little hard. But as a family, typically what we do on Friday nights Everybody turns off their phones, everybody turns off their Nintendos, and we just spend time together. And I know, for some of your parents, you're like, then what do you do? Well, what we do is we play board games together, Uh, play Catan, or we play uh, Ticket to Ride. We do some sort of a game together. And and here's the deal. My kids, they love their video games. But if you ask them what their favorite time of the week is, it's Friday night. They'll actually ask us, Dad, are we doing it again this Friday? Are we doing it again this Friday? Because they would rather have some uninterrupted time with their parents than they would with Roblox. Telling a parent right now, like, what would happen if you just kind of grinned and bared it for the first time and said, no, we're not going to do Nintendo. We're just going to spend time with you tonight. I promise you, you'll be able to invest some things into your children that they will love dearly. But occasionally, we'll do on those nights we'll actually we'll skip the no electronics things, and we'll do family movie nights. So my wife will make up popcorn. She does like this. She takes olive oil and she'll drop a kernel in there and wait till the first one pops, and then dump the rest of it in there. And uh, so we do popcorn. And then she, she you got to talk to her. Like she uses this. Um, Oh, what's that stuff you use on the popcorn? It's ridiculous. It's salt, but there's something else in there. Nutri- nutritional yeast, so it's healthy. It's healthy, apparently. I don't know if that is healthy. It's so good. It's so good. So we'll have popcorn and then we'll we'll like get sit down, everybody on the couch. We turn on the TV and we're like, okay, now let's pick a show. Now, when I was a kid, it used to be like you had 10 options. And then agreed to, like, you had a couple hundred options. Now you have a million options. You know what I mean? Like, you got one kid that wants Disney Plus and they want to watch Star Wars. And you got another kid that wants to watch, you know, some other, some other show. And you got one kid that wants to watch Mr. Beast on YouTube. And mom and dad were like, no, no, no. We're, we're like, we're going to watch something that grown ups like. And the next thing you know, like, it's supposed to be family movie night. And now it's like, we need family therapy night. Because the truth is this, the more you have, the harder it is to narrow it down. When you have less options, it's easier to make a decision. And with the accumulation of much, it's harder to choose one. And and we live in a world where we think that we're going to find happiness, peace, Joy in the many things, in the vastness of options, but the reality is you will only find happiness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost in a single option. I'm saying like the true significance you're looking for in your soul does not come from a garage filled with things, it comes with a solitary heart, Really, we, we find ourselves looking for, for things, and we, we collect this, and we collect that, and we, and, and, and we build our, 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 we amass our, our, our things, and we're really, we're not looking for each of those individual things. We aren't really searching for the many things we collect. The truth is, we're searching for one thing. We may look under many places, and we may turn many many rocks looking for significance in our life, but I promise you, what you're looking for is only one thing. There's only one thing. What happens is we, we look for significance and peace and joy by amassing relationships, and so we stack up. Partners, thinking that somehow this makes me significant, and the truth is, it just creates a greater hole inside of your life. Or, or maybe you think that if, as long as you climb the ladder of success, that somehow having a measure of success will will make you feel significant and complete. And yet, you never seem to find that place of completeness. Or, or perhaps uh, finding that there, there must be some sort of ultimate level of education, and so we we stack up degrees on the wall of our office. like a thermometer, thinking that somehow this is going to satisfy the the desire in your soul. The truth is none of those things will satisfy. They're all good things. Well, all but the first one. They're all good things. But they won't satisfy the desire of your heart. When Jesus says this idea that that there's a merchant looking for a pearl, and when he finds it, he sells everything he has for the one. Or, or when you see Gideon, that he, he's longing for help, he's longing for rescue, and when he finds the God of rescue, he gets rid of every other option. It's really showing us that there's only one thing in life that matters. There's only one thing in this life that really has consequence. David says it like this in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek. This is the only thing I seek in my life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, David understood something that even in, the, in all of his political prowess and with all of his prestige, there was only one thing in his life that truly mattered, and it was to enter into the presence of God. Let me say it like this. like, of all the things you have, you can stack them all up on one side of a scale, and then you can have Knowing God on the other side of the scale. And all the things of your life combined still don't measure to the weight of knowing God. Like when I was a kid, we used to collect baseball cards. Now my kids collect Pokemon. Well, not anymore. They would get mad at me if I told you this, but they still like Pokemon cards. You know what I'm saying? Like, But here's the deal. Like, they get these Pokemon cards, and then they're, like, trading these cards for, like, you get, like, a, you got like a Charizard. And you need a Charizard XP or something. I don't know. You, like, you trade all these cards hoping to somehow amass a better deck to be able to destroy somebody else in Pokemon. And... And and you find yourself like you trade one card for three cards. You try to like how many cards equal the value of this one card. For me, when I was a kid, I I would take my cards and uh, I would send them to the baseball players. Uh, And and like I had this Nolan Ryan card. I sent a Nolan Ryan card to Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, he was a a pitcher for the Rangers. And I sent him a card and and he signed it. I don't know if he signed it. It may have been his secretary or it may have been a stamp. But he sent back the card with a, 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 a signature on a Sharpie. And I remember I'd go to school and show my friends, like, check this out, I got a signed Nolan Ryan card. And Back in the day, he was, he was the man. And I'd have friends and be like, I will give you my entire binder full of baseball cards for that one card. And yet I'd be like, no, not gonna happen because the entire binder full of stock cards does not equal the value of my signed Nolan Ryan card. And I'm telling somebody today, That all the things you bring into your life, hoping they will provide significance, all of them combined, do not equal the weight of that pearl of great price. David says it like this in Psalm 84. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than have a place to live in the tents of the wicked. Paul says it like this in the New Testament. He says... Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on towards the mark of the prize of the high calling that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm going to leave behind everything behind me, and I'm going to pursue that one great thing of purpose in life. Right now, somebody thinks, yeah, but I don't have stuff behind me. Paul must have had a lot of bad stuff behind him. He was leaving behind all his regret and all of his shame and all of his disappointment. And can I tell you, that's not what he's doing. He's not saying, I leave behind me all the bad things I've done and I pursue God. That's not what he's saying. What, what he's saying is this. I am actually a, a, an Israelite that can trace my heritage back to a specific tribe. He starts there. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says, I, I'm a, a, a Pharisee among Pharisees. So I'm like the religious elite of the religious elite. And then he says, I was trained by the greatest scholar of my time, Gamaliel. And essentially, Paul had the equivalent. Of like three PhDs. He's he's saying I have all of this stuff. I was zealous for God. I was I was pure like I was after God. And then Paul says, and I leave all those good things behind me because I'm pursuing after the one thing that really matters in life, that is Christ Jesus. There are many things in this life that are good. But do they actually move us forward? There's a lot of things in life that aren't sin, they're not bad, but do they really move us forward into the things of God? I'm I'm thankful for the successes that I've experienced. I'm thankful for the successes you've experienced. But but really, uh, does chasing an endless dream equal the prize of the great calling of Christ Jesus? Paul says it like this in another passage. He says, my goal in life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul says this, I I want one thing in life, and that is that I would know him. You've got to have a singular vision for your life. You've got to have a singular direction. This This is important because... When, when you have one vision, you have a univision, right? It's like Mexican TV. <laughs> univision. But when you have two visions, you have die vision. And for so many of us, we want the things of God in our life, but we have a secondary vision, and we wonder why we feel divided inside we wonder why we feel half-hearted and the truth is you need one singular vision like this is this goes to every aspect of life if you're a business owner in the house today you've got to recognize the power of one vision You may hire people on that know how to do their task, but if their vision is separate from what you're trying to do with your business, you will have division in your business. You may be trying to start a ministry, and there's a lot of people that love, have a heart for Jesus and want to join you. But they've got to have the same goal, the same vision, same direction, because there's a lot of good goals, but we need to have a singular vision. There's this power of having a singular vision that says, I'm willing to sell everything I have to find the pearl of great price. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to know Jesus Christ alone. And here's the deal, if you're seeking that one vision, the the other side of this coin is that everything, although they don't equal the value of that that pearl, everything is worth losing to gain that one pearl. At at this point in the story, we, we often approach hermeneutical debates. Hermeneutics is the study of how we study Scripture. So it teaches us how we approach and interpret. Do we interpret, interpret Scripture through a, a historical, through a grammatical, through a literary lens? Like, how do we look at Scripture? And, and there's a lot, of, um, a lot of people that at this point in the, in the, the juncture, they, they would like to stand back and, uh, and say, well, there's, this is a debatable parable, and it is a debatable parable. There's really two main thoughts on how we interpret this parable. The first is this is that you are the pearl of great price, and God is the pearl merchant. And that when God sees you, he's willing to surrender his great power in heaven and humble himself to the point of a man, even to the shame of the cross, so that he could get you. Come on, somebody. I'm thankful for a God that doesn't doesn't have to reside in his high and lofty place, but he's willing to be low and humble just so that I can understand just a fragment of his greatness. But the other way we interpret this passage is is that, that God is the pearl, and you are the pearl merchant. And it's at this place where we get our, uh, our YouTube uh, cynics and our YouTube um, theologians that, that, that like to attack the church and say, no, 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 how dare you read yourself into the scripture? And I would respond by saying, the reason we read ourselves into the scripture is this, is because the scripture wasn't written about us, but it was written to us. And it was written for our benefit, and the scripture says that all scripture, all scripture is given for for our edification. So we 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 do understand the scripture through it. So so it's not this idea that like we think we are. David. Like, like, how dare you read the Bible and, and you're making yourself David? No, no, no. You are not David, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You are not Moses but we still serve a God that is in the delivering business, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, and so we still do the same sorts of stuff that he did. If he did it for them, he can do it for us, and no, you are not Gideon in this story, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What I'm saying is this stuff still applies to you. And so in this idea that, that God is the pearl and you are the pearl merchant, it is, it is a very reasonable thing to say, if God is the pearl and I'm the pearl merchant, then it is my role in the story to sell everything I have and get a hold of the one thing that matters, the only thing of value in this life, Jesus Christ. There's a story of, of a young man that comes to Jesus, and we, we don't know his, his name. The Bible doesn't tell us his name. It, it just calls him the rich young ruler, which, which really, if you were known, not by your name, but you were known as the rich young CEO, that says a lot about your character, doesn't it? Because there's a truth, you can, you can acquire a lot of success, even as a young person. And unfortunately, you can quickly, your success can outpace your character, can't it? Yeah. And so as a, as a young person, if, especially if you're experiencing success, you've got to get people in your life who have been where you are and are unimpressed with you. People that love you and are not impressed with you. People that are willing to talk to you, that are willing to, to hear you out. And we see struggles in the church all the time, right, with these leaders that build these huge churches and they fail. And we're like, well, I'm just going to give up on the church. Now. No, well, the problem is we've given up on people that are experiencing success, recognizing that just because I'm experiencing success does not mean my character matches my success. So pursue people to speak into your life. Mentors don't just seek you out. If you're in the room and you're looking for a mentor, let me say this. The mentor you're looking for doesn't have time to seek you out. You've got to be proactive. And so this guy comes to Jesus because he, he, he's, he's wanting more from his life than just success because how many know that success can be empty? And he comes to him, he says, Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, he says, well, what do the scriptures say? And this guy says, oh, it's, it's you know, i got to be good to my neighbor, and i got to give, give money to the poor, and i, I got to do this. And, I gotta do, and he says, I'll do all these things. And Jesus says, well, go and, and do do likewise. Go do these things. And and the, the guy, he says, I've done all this stuff. I'm, I've already done it. I've already checked all the boxes. And then Jesus throws him a curveball. He says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's important that you notice that he loved him. Jesus isn't being harsh. He's being loving. He says he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, this rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus wasn't saying this to hurt him. He was saying it to reveal to this man his limitation. Because the limitation he had, the one thing that was holding him back, was all of it. His one thing was all the options. I want you to know, God isn't—he isn't actually wanting you to just get rid of all your stuff to somehow please Him. That's not what He's after. He's not after your stuff. He doesn't need your stuff. He wants your heart. It's like when I—I I took my kids to McDonald's the other day, and as you can tell, I go to McDonald's a lot. I. <clears throat> We're to McDonald's and <laughs> we're going through the drive-through and and uh, and we get in the car, start to drive away, and I turn around and it's time for the dad tax. You know what I'm saying? Dad tax means I turn my hand back behind the door behind behind the seat, and I'm going to reach into your French fries and I'm going to get some French fries. <laughs> I'm not going to order for one for myself, but I'm going to take some out of all three of yours. <laughs> and so so I reach back and and my oldest son he he knows what's up, so he sticks the French fries out and I grab a grab a, a pinch of uh, French fries and I eat those down and. A little later, I stick my hand back, and my youngest son, he sticks his, his cup up there, and I, reach, I grab some french fries, and I'm like, yeah. A little while later, I stick my hand back there. It's my daughter's turn, and she puts in my hand this cold, half-eaten, soggy french fry. I was like, girl... Girl, you realize I just supplied your whole meal. Like, I'm just asking for a dad tax here. I just want your heart. Like, I, I really don't care about the french fries. I just want to know that your heart is with me. Come on, somebody. Like, like, <laughs> like if, if it came down to a girl, like, just to prove a point, we'll go back and we're going to go order, like a, like, a whole box full of french fries. I'm going to dump them on your head to show you I didn't need your french fry. Right? I didn't need your french fry. What I needed was your heart. That's all I needed. And that's what God is asking for in this scenario. He's not asking for all of it. He's just asking for your heart. He's not asking for all of your time so that you have to be some sort of holy monk that is always thinking about him. But he does want you to let him into more than just a Sunday morning. He he wants you to be willing to allow him in on a Monday business meeting call to allow the Spirit of the Lord to speak through you. Maybe he wants you to let him in during a sales call on Tuesday, or maybe a conversation with an irate customer on Wednesday. I'm just telling somebody that like whatever you're doing, he's saying, just let me into that place. You may be operating a shovel on the side of the road somewhere, but if you would let God into that moment, that moment can be a holy moment, can become a holy moment and a holy place. But here's the difficulty. The difficulty is this, as the band would come, the difficulty is that we know what to do, don't we? I, you want to get in shape? I know how to get in shape. Decrease how many calories I take in and increase how many calories I spend, right? Pretty simple. Eat healthier. Do some physical exercise. Do you want to know why this thing stays? It's not for lack of knowledge. It stays the price is too high. Because I'm not willing to pay the price of getting rid of this thing. We all know how to grow spiritually, don't we? You don't even need to come to church every Sunday morning just to figure out how to grow spiritually. Read your Bible. Spend quiet time alone with God and pray. Right? Allow Him to be the number one priority in your life. Gonna grow spiritually. Your spirit woman is just gonna get strong. Your spirit man is gonna get strong. The problem is, it's not lack of knowledge. The problem is the price is high. We're just not willing to pay the price. We like our options. We like the things we have amassed. I kind of tell you that Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter six. He says, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you." So he—he's he, not looking for you to be destitute. He's not looking for you to be without relationship. What he's saying is, if if you would seek Him first, He'll bring the relationship to you. If you'd seek him first, he'll open doors of opportunity for you. If you would seek him first, whatever it is that you need, he'll provide it. Because the truth is all, all the things you're looking for are really inside that one answer of placing God in the highest priority of your life. There's a lot of roads in this life that, over-promise, and under-deliver. There's only one. But whatever he says, he keeps it. His name is Jesus Christ. In The story of Gideon, we see was was common in the Old Testament is that when somebody was surrendering their life towards God, they would take an animal and they would offer it as a sacrifice. What they were doing is they were taking the commodities that they used to live and they were surrendering that to God. In the New Testament, we don't build altars out of rocks and we don't put goats on the altar. That's weird. New Testament, what happens is Jesus Christ is the altar. He is both the sacrifice and the altar. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And we don't have to go off some high hill to find him and surrender the priorities of our life to him. We, We don't have to go to some temple or some Basilica or some mosque to go find him. The way he works is he comes to us. And he simply says, Will you surrender your options to me? Will you surrender the vastness of your opportunities to me? Would you surrender? your relationships, say, God, I've got this desire inside for deep relationship, but I'm always chasing another one. Would you surrender that to him? Maybe for somebody in this room, it's this. Your option is offense. You were offended by somebody at some point in your life. And it doesn't run your world, but you always keep this offense in your back pocket in case you ever need to pull it out as a trump card as to why you are the way you are or why God hasn't done what you thought he'd do. You pull out this offense, pull out a bitterness. And God says it like this. Would you surrender all of that to him? And make him number one in your life. Would you stand with me all across the room? So I ask you? What is it that you hold on to as an option? What is it that you place your trust in other than God? Is it your influence? Is it your insurance profile? Portfolio? Is it to who you know? Is it a bitterness that you've held in your heart because it keeps you safe? Because I believe that God's desire right now is that His children would surrender those options we keep on the table. That we love Him, but He's not first. I believe it's God's desire for us to say, no, starting right now, I'm going to take you off that shelf, and I'm going to make you the highest priority in my life. If you're here right now, and and you can recognize that there are some options that you still hold, some idols, anything that sets itself between you and God. Right now, as the band plays, I just want you to lift those things and surrender to the Lord. And out loud, begin to reprioritize. God right now, I surrender to you, Lord. I know that you are a God that doesn't want anyone else before you. You want to be the first in my life, so right now, Lord, I lay all those things down my ambitions, my dreams, my successes, and my accolades. And I say yes to the Almighty, to the King of kings, and to the Lord of lords. God, you are the Alpha, and you are the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. So I surrender my life to you. Lay down my options. And I ask you to be first. Let's worship Him
0: right now. Respond. Hey, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to today's podcast. If you want to learn more about Celebration Church, I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.thecelebration.church, to find out more. Well, we love you guys, and let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.